Thursday, June 10th, 2010, and you've got Oz in your ears. This is Peter Bergman on the road for Radio Free Oz, and I'm at the Creep Air Force Base in the Doom Room. That's one level under the Situation Room at the DOD MGM Grand somewhere in Nevada. And with me is Colonel Bob Nutz, drone commander and showrunner here. Is that right, Colonel Nutz? Laugh at my name and I'll have you drone. Uh-huh. Ha ha, just kidding, soldier. I'm not a soldier. Everyone's a soldier when our country's at war. Yeah, right. Well, okay, what are we looking at here on these two big video monitors? Well, I went over there, that's AFPAC. AFPAC? Afghanistan, Pakistan, it's all one big show now. Well, can we listen in, Colonel? Sure, that's Kiowa 84, it's hovering down the Kabul, the freaking nowhere highway. No, I'm not seeing any sand jockeys down there, Bob. Look, uh, let's get back to this uh, this waiver here and the re-up and ship papers. Uh, we really have to work this out. The bonus? What about the bonus? Well, it isn't strictly for signing the PTS waiver. I know you can get sent, but re-up and ship. Look at graph uh, 3024. Yeah. It says uh, fly times, times cultural relations, times, you know, we can make a fortune. Can I talk to him? Well, sure. Say, soldiers, can you tell the RFO audience just what you're watching down there on the road? We are hunting rabbits. Uh, detergents. Insurgents. Happy hunting, boys. Now, over there, Mr. Bretman, you can watch uh, Mexeriz. Wow, hi, Def. I can see the slats in the border fence. Yeah, they can get through those slats. Well, how? Blow a hole in them. Oh, look at this. They can just ramp up over the damn thing with one of their high-rider SUVs. Wow, there's 50 people coming over the fence. What do you guys do now? We drone them. Now, we're not allowed to drag them. We just drone them. We drone them into the hands of the... Here they come, the Hintville National Guard. Yeah, there they are, just breveted right there to the big fence. That sounds painful. Hanging your body across the border is the least you can do for your country. Yeah, well, okay. Well, thanks for the tour, Colonel. Uh, wait a minute. Uh, what's that? Captain, I got 12 possible insurgents at the Shake Shack down there at Click 343. I'm confirming, I'm confirming. Are they armed? Well, I can't tell if those are burkas or rocket launchers. All right, we have a crowd of presumed terrorist, militant, insurgent, alien. Requesting orders, requesting orders. Ah, hellfire. Show them who's boss. This is Peter Bergman on the road for RFO, and I'm out of here. Yeah, Radio Free Oz. <laughs> Up here on RadioFreeOz.com. I'm your host, Peter Bergman, my co-host, David Osmond. And before I go any further, yeah. I have to tell you this one, David. Okay. My, my daughter comes out uh, of her bedroom this morning. We live together, and, and she's doing a bunch of essays for college. And she said, I've been up all night. And I said, why? She said, well, she said, for some reason, the, the spelling uh, program inside Word turned Alexander Hamilton into Alexander Ham Sandwich. <laughs> and I had to go through the entire document changing it. I went, oh, yeah, Alexander. And didn't he write the Federalist Papers with James Mustard? I, I remember him well. And, and, and Ben and Ben Frankfurter created yes. the stove, you know? So I just, oh, man. See, Alex. over the, the founding Coney Island fathers. <laughs> I'm being frank. Oh, my oh. gosh, that's funny. Well, Judith came back from driving Preston to school this morning and said, ah, he left his Wittgenstein in the car. <laughs> he left it where it bloody well belongs. I said if Wittgenstein had a choice as to where he'd be left, he'd pick the car. Here we go. You know, oh, my gosh. Reading Wittgenstein, not reading <laughs> Wittgenstein, same thing. Same thing. But it's not as hard 
as spelling his name. So uh, tell tell me about well, the weekend. Well, well, this is what people watched the last week of May on television. Just in case you know you think people actually get any information off of television, these these are this this is the scores on broadcast TV. Uh, uh, American Idol Wednesday. These are the top rated shows from top to bottom. American Idol Wednesday, Dancing with the Stars, Dancing with the Stars results. American Idol Tuesday, and then that really that really great action melodrama NCIS that scored a big ten rating, and down to two and a half men. I'm not sure if that's about a guy with a big penis or not. I have these fears about these television programs. Well, that that that's your own private issue. Will you move on? Yes, The Big Bang Theory. Am I right or what? Yeah, you right. know? Come on, there it is. It's, it's, two and a half men. The Big Bang. The Big Bang. Anyway, that's what they're watching on commercial television. Well, two take, guys go at it, and the half man takes. And notes. the half man uh, takes notes. Good idea. That that will catch you on CSI Miami, which brings up the rear here. Cable TV. Nothing but the WWE, the wrestlers, right, and the NBA. That was it for cable TV. So no one is watching The Well. And nobody's watching the AFPAC SmackDown. No. That's the real SmackDown. Oh, what about The Well? Isn't The Well on there? No, The Well. The BP Well, it was did, big. The Well didn't make it. Oh, What my can I tell golly, you? Golly, I watch it all the time. You know, it, it, it's never exactly the same. <laughs> <laughs> well, what did they say? So what does Wittgenstein say about stepping in the same oil well twice? Here's a juicy little piece from Newsweek. Failed Times Square bomber Fasal Shahzad says he was driven by anger over dozens of unmanned drone attacks that he witnessed during his most recent five-month visit to his home in Pakistan. That seems a plausible enough motive, particularly since he joins a growing list of homegrown U.S. terror suspects who have cited the escalation of U.S. military operations on the Afghanistan-Pakistan border in general or in the drone attacks in particular. They include U.S. resident Najibullah Zazi, the Afghan immigrant who pleaded guilty in a plot to bomb the New York subway system. Major Nidal Malik Hassan, the U.S.-born Army psychiatrist charged with fatally shooting 13 people at Fort Hood, Texas last year. And the five American Muslims from Virginia accused of plotting attacks against targets in Pakistan and Afghanistan. So why isn't the Obama administration listening? It has so far been unable or unwilling to acknowledge the link between the drone attacks and the rising incidence of homegrown terror. Instead, the administration has accused the Pakistani Taliban of directing and probably financing the Times Square plot, even though Shahzad has said he went to the Taliban for help, not the other way around. That doesn't mean, of course, that they didn't, you know, put the money in his hand, but at least he was the one that went to them. They didn't turban over to him. Obama's top counterterrorism advisor, John Brennan, dismissed the reports that Shahzad was motivated by the drone strikes and instead said that the suspect was captured by the murderous rhetoric of al-Qaeda that looks at the United States as an enemy. Certainly he must be aware of some of that murderous rhetoric, but the fact is, he says, is the drones made me do it. Listen up. The Obama team has its rationale for drone attacks. It stresses that the drone attacks have degraded the capabilities of the Pakistani Taliban and al-Qaeda without putting U.S. troops in harm's way on Pakistani soil. What this calculus ignores is the damage drone attacks inflict on America's reputation in the Muslim world and the possibilities of blowback about which the CIA, which leads the drone war, has rightly warned. 
<laughs> blowback? Don't we remember the blowback from putting all those stinger missiles in the hands of the Mujahideen or anybody that called themselves a Mujahideen in Afghanistan? Wake up! The war on the AFPAC border has replaced Iraq as the main source of homegrown radicalization. I'm surprised. Qaeda's effort to find and recruit terrorists has been replaced by a bottom-up flow of volunteers, a flow that is currently very weak and extremely difficult to track. What these individuals had in common was that they were radicalized online, typically by coverage of the AFPAC battles. The most controversial element of those battles is the use of CIA predator drones on targets in Pakistan. The CIA currently wages a 24-7 predator campaign against the Pakistani Taliban and Al-Qaeda. Now, wait a minute. You know something? How come the CIA is allowed to run armed drone attacks? I thought that's a military function. I didn't realize the CIA was military. How come nobody's standing up in Congress and saying, who gave the CIA the right to drone people? Well, maybe now that I've said it, they'll do it. And maybe not. In Pakistan, drone attacks are Obama's weapon of choice. He has expanded the use of drones to include low-level targets such as foot soldiers. That's good. Drone the foot soldiers. Don't forget the ones that look and smell like insurgents. Bim! Kill them all, let God sort them out. According to an analysis of U.S. government sources, the CIA has killed about 12 times more low-level fighters than mid- to high-level Qaeda and Taliban leaders since the drone attacks intensified in the summer of 2008. So they're taking out grunts, not bigwigs. In the first four months of this year, the Predators fired nearly 60 missiles in Pakistan, about the same number as in Afghanistan, the recognized war theater. And remember, we're not at war with either, and we're, we're less at war with Pakistan. I mean, the, the Taliban didn't have their training grounds in Lahore or Islamabad. In Pakistan, the pace of drone strikes has increased to two or three a week, up roughly fourfold from the Bush years. Although drone strikes have killed more than a dozen Qaeda and Taliban leaders, they have incinerated hundreds of civilians, including women and children. Huh. Predator strikes have inflamed anti-American rage among Afghans and Pakistanis, including first or second generation immigrants in the West, as well as elite members of the security services. The Pakistani Taliban and other militants are moving to exploit this anger, vowing to carry out suicide bombings in major U.S. cities. Drone attacks have become a rallying cry for Taliban militants, feeding the flow of volunteers into a small, loose network that is harder to trace even than shadowy Al-Qaeda. Jeffrey Atticott, former legal advisor to Army Special Operations says the strategy is creating more enemies than we're killing or capturing. The Obama administration needs to at least acknowledge the dangers of military escalation and to welcome a real debate about the costs of the drone war, because clearly its fallout is reaching home. No, they have to do more than acknowledge the dangers of military escalation. Come on, Newsweek, stop wussing out. How about just speak truth to power? And it's more than welcoming a real debate. Oh, welcome in the real debate. Let it walk in. There's a door there. Let it walk out. Who cares? They've got to stop these drone attacks. They are state terror. Yeah, I know they successfully take out this Taliban leader or that Al-Qaeda leader. And the minute that they are put in their graves in huge mass, um, you know, uh, uh, funerals that are seen around the world, two more pop up. This just isn't working. Dave, I pulled this out of Talking Points memo. Get this. Mississippi Governor Haley Barber, a former chairman of the Republican National Committee, has consistently insisted that Pretty much every reaction to the spill has been an overreaction. 
Okay. Barber originally claimed several times that the spill isn't anything like Exxon Valdez. He's right. It's much worse. He has appeared on television and gone out of his way to praise both BP and the government efforts, but has repeatedly blasted the media for hurting his state's tourism with reports that make the spill sound like this is Armageddon. He told a local newspaper that cancellations at hotels and other attractions were uh, at a record pace. And the reason is they think we are inundated with oil or that that's imminent. Okay, so the governor has also been critical of calls to halt offshore drilling in the Gulf. Now, this is my favorite. A bunch of liberal elite were hoping this would be the three-mile island of offshore drilling, he told a business group. What century is he living in? Does Does liberal elite sell anywhere than amongst the NOP rear guard. The liberal elite? The, um, the in the sp- first place, I don't know how much coastline Mississippi has down there, but it's not as much as, say, Louisiana, for example. Yeah, but Louisiana is filled with liberal elite. That, you know, that's, uh, why, well, that's why they're causing all this problem, like Bobby Jindal and all the other yeah, liberal elite. Yeah, all those really left-wingers down there. Yeah. yeah. All right, so when oil okay. actually washed ashore on an island off the coast of the state, Barber said, this could turn out to be something catastrophic and terrible, but that has not just been the case so far. Uh-huh. The governor who insisted his state was prepared for spill damage. Thank God's grace that Petit Bois Island did not suffer more harm. I don't think the island was hurt one iota, he said. Tar balls are all on the beach and, and they should be easy to clean up with rakes and shovels. So all's well. Meanwhile, Three. Don't they have a PR department in this state? Yeah, they've got BPs, <laughs> three, you know, the same people. Right? Just yeah. tar balls. It's just pictures of people in white suits picking tar balls off a clean beach with tourists, you know, coming behind them, just waiting to throw down their blankets. And the great green logo, BP, flying overhead. Yeah, greenwashed to death. Meanwhile, three of Barber's fellow Gulf Coast governors and uh, have uh, have been front and center with criticisms and demands in response to the catastrophe. Louisiana Governor Bobby Jindal has slammed both the government and BP for failing to act fast enough in response to the spill. Florida Governor Charlie Crist has asked BP for millions of dollars to fund a tourism ad campaign. And Alabama Governor Bob Riley has admitted that the spill has forced him to reconsider his support for offshore drilling. Now, these are all Republicans or former Republicans. Crist now has become an independent because he was bumped by the Teabag heads. Well, okay. nobody's going to move Haley Barber, man. Nobody's and so these, move uh, And when those three fellow Gulf Coast governors traveled to Louisiana just last week to be with President Barack Obama while he surveyed the effects of the spill, Barber was MIA. So there's three Republicans and Barack Obama looking at the disaster. And where is big Haley B? I'm sorry, there is no disaster in this state. Here's a piece about American health from the gray lady. As Americans have grown fatter over the last generation, inviting more heart disease, diabetes, and premature deaths, all that extra weight has also become a burden in the maternity ward, where babies take their first breath of life. About one in five women are obese when they become pregnant, meaning they have a body mass index of at least 30, as would a five-foot-five-inch woman weighing 180 pounds according to researchers with the Federal Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And medical evidence suggests that obesity might be contributing to record high rates of cesarean sections and leading to more birth defects and deaths for mothers and babies. Hospitals, especially in poor neighborhoods, have been forced to adjust, 
They are buying longer surgical instruments, more sophisticated fetal testing machines, and bigger beds. They are holding sensitivity training for staff members and counseling women about losing weight or even having bariatric surgery before they become pregnant. At Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, where 38% of the women giving birth are obese, Patricia Garcia had to be admitted after she had a stroke, part of a constellation of illnesses related to her weight, including diabetes and weak kidneys. At seven months pregnant, she should have been feeling the thump of tiny feet against her belly. But as she lay flat in her hospital bed, doctors buzzing about trying to stretch out her pregnancy day by precious day, Ms. Garcia, who had recently weighed in at 261 pounds, said she was too numb from water retention to feel anything. On May 5th, 11 weeks shy of her due date, a sonogram showed that the baby's growth was lagging and an emergency cesarean was ordered. She was given general anesthesia because her bulk made it hard to feel her spine to place a local anesthetic. Dr. Betsy Latner, the obstetrician on call, stood on a stool so she could reach over Mrs. Garcia's belly. A flap of fat covered her bikini line, so the doctor had to make a higher incision. In an operation where every minute counted, it took four or five minutes rather than the usual one or two to pull out a one-pound, 11-ounce baby boy. Studies have shown that babies born to obese women are nearly three times as likely to die within the first month of birth than women of normal weight, and that obese women are almost twice as likely to have a stillbirth. This is a big health problem. Obesity. What does it come from? Well, some of it is genetic, right? There are people who can diet, you know, like starkas and still put on weight, but most of it is bad food. Now, there's fast food, a gigantic industry that doesn't care anything about public health, only about the next 90-day projections so they can fiddle with the stock. And then there's the fact that the poorer you get, the less you spend time dealing with your nutrition. You have to buy cheaper and cheaper foods, and the cheaper that foods get generally, I'm not talking about buying fresh vegetables and being real careful how you put it together, but the cheaper they get, the faster and dirtier and fatter and more obese making. So this is a serious health problem that's affecting us, as far as I'm concerned, it's a much more serious problem than terrorism. A lot more people in this country are dying of obesity-related diseases than they are at the wrong end of a terrorist's bomb or whatever. So we've got to take this seriously. There's a whole lot of things we're going to have to take seriously as we tip into the new age, the great correction. And nutrition is certainly one of them. Well, Dave, it's powder into poultry time. Powder you know? into poultry? Yeah, this is from Time Magazine, okay. you know, which, which has become increasingly less serious, which means I like it all the more. All right. Do we really need to kill animals to live? Good question. Right, yeah. right? Okay. And that includes human animals, I guess, but we won't get into that. Today, the hunger for meat is also contributing to the climate change catastrophe. We know that. The mm -hmm. gases from the chickens and the pigs. And the cows and the manure lagoons. I love that. You know, yeah. It sounds almost like the new tourist trap after the oil completely spreads over the Gulf. Manure lagoons. Ah, oh, yeah. Mm. I'm going to a slippery slick manure lagoon. And, you know, you can always plant a few of those uh, 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 palm trees that are really antennae, you know, that go up there. The Dubai palm the tree. The Dubai palm tree, And, yeah. you know, you jump in the lagoon and you've got it. You come out with an instant tan, a dark tan. 
All right, so they're yeah. part of global warming. Okay. So the idea of fake meat has never been more alluring, they say. Well, what if you could cut into a juicy chicken breast that wasn't mm-hmm. chicken at all, but rather some indistinguishable imitation made harmlessly from plant life? Well, excuse now, me, Mr. Bergman, I have this piece of soya Soya stuff here. It's white. Soya's not it's, enough. It's hold, not it, enough. hold it. Hold it. You, can't cut into you make this, fun don't. of this. You oh. make fun. Oh, okay. You, you're just one of those guys that doesn't want to cut into some indistinguishable <laughs> imitation a piece of something made harmlessly you're, from something you're else. You're damn right, Mr. Bergman. All right. Well, go ahead. Scientists recently at the University of Missouri announced that after more than a decade of research, they have created the first soy product that not only can be flavored to taste like chicken, but also breaks apart in your mouth the way chicken does. Not too soft. Not too hard but with that ineffable chew of real flesh. <laughs> the Hannibal yeah, no, Lecter no, chicken. Wait a minute. Is, <laughs> that, is that a quote you've been, have you been writing in your sleep again? No, no, I've been writhing in my sleep every day. All right, so when you pull the product apart, this yeah. is the Missouri invention, yep. it disjoints the way chicken does with a few random strands of, in quotes, meat hanging loosely. This now, took a decade a of research from these bozos in Missouri. I see how they got the meat, but you're disjointing it. So what about the bones? You mean there are bones inside this fake meat? I, I have think this, about that. I have this piece of white soya, Mr. Bergman. It has no bones in it. Well, that, they, they were, I don't need to break it We're going to press... Uh, let me move okay, on. Okay, please. S- stop deconstructing something that's already so ridiculous. <laughs> the vegetarian world, they say, is buzzing about the breakthrough in Missouri, along with ham... Chicken has always been the holy grail, says Seth Tibbet, uh-huh. 59, the creator of Tofurky and the dean of soy meat inventors. <laughs> there he is like, on his t- tombstone, dean of soy meat inventors. Tibbet's Oregon <laughs> based. Charlie Tofurky, <clears throat> 1927. Now, go ahead. Tibbet's Oregon based Turtle Island Foods has become famous for its surprisingly full flavored fake turkey. I went, stop right there. <laughs> I've had it. It's not full flavored. Unless someone has run over your taste buds with a biodiesel Mercedes. Okay, I just, I just want to put that in there, okay? All right, here. Americans spend something like half a trillion dollars on real meat every year. That's um, what it costs in my market, I'll tell you. <laughs> right. You live on this island, you, you can spend that in a, in a week. Wow, yeah, that's just meat while you try to eat some fish. Okay, go ahead. Uh, a meaty-tasting alternative that could capture even a tenth of this market would make someone very rich. Yeah, PepsiCo. Yeah. <laughs> the University of Missouri team may have finally cracked the code. Well, okay. For, now, for several years, Fu Hung Xiet a biological engineering professor who at his previous job at Quaker figured out how to use glycerin to soften the raisins in the company's <laughs> granola has wondered how to solve the fake chicken problem. Now, does Fu Hung have any idea what the extra glycerin will do to me? I might be better off with hard raisins, right? Fu, really? Fu, I sure. Brain, sure. Fu is obviously a member of the just do it generation, right? You know, excessive glycerin hardens your testicles, let's say. But the raisins are soft. The raisins are soft. Okay, so we're fine. We're doing fine. <laughs> Raisin detra. Right, Go so, ahead. Yeah. So here comes the answer. Yep. The answer was certainly going to be a combination <laughs> of soy, wheat, gluten, oil, and water. Yummy, I hope yummy. so. I hope so. But how to transform from a congealed goo into a believable, believable simulacrum of chicken? Now, that's the <laughs> trillion-dollar question, right? See, it's all about the texture. Uh-huh. Before an animal is killed, its flesh essentially marinates for all the years that the animal lives in the rich biological stew that uh, that we call blood. It's a it's a fecund bath. Oh, the the, the writing in time is really going. Oh, over this the is a fecund bath. Fecund bath of oxygen, hormones, sugars, and plasma. Yum yum. 
vegan foods like tofu and, and tempeh mm-hmm. uh, don't have the benefit of sloshing around in something so complex no as blood. blood before they go on. No, you, you mean to tell me that the soy cakes I get at the local nature pit have not been sloshed around in blood? They... I'm they're, going to talk. They're to blood them. free. They're yeah. he, hemo, uh, a hemoglobin. Yeah, right, right. Hemoglobin with a great big line. There you it. go. So, how do you create fleshy, muscly texture without blood? I hope we're going to find out. First, you certainly not me. No, take not, a dry yeah, mixture right. of soy it's protein. It's you. It's you. It's you. It's you. Not me. Because okay. I'm You take a dry mixture of soy protein powder and wheat flour, add water, and dump it into an industrial extruder. <laughs> At first, the mixture looks like. Cat bladder, cake batter, <laughs> cake, cake black, cat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. But, but as heated to precisely 346 degrees, the batter firms up and forms complex styrations. I guess you'd call them chicken-like styrations. Uh-huh. Public health types have long yearned for a credible soy meat because soy right, is a right. great source of protein. So this is a very specific temperature. You cook this mixture of vegetation. At. Yeah, right. You cook it exactly. So I mean, double, and, and double everybody's double been looking forward to it. Trouble. It's it, it's what they want. You know, it's like... But no, the, no. Wait a minute. What? It's not what anybody wants. But go ahead. <laughs> well, people people for the ethical treatment of animals, uh-huh. PETA, have offered a $1 million prize to anyone who can bring in vitro chicken meat to market. These people are insane. I yeah, just thought uh, they didn't want people to eat fur. Yeah. Now, I would risk less if I offered a similar prize for anyone who identified a member of PETA with a sense of humor. Okay? <laughs> You're going to go for bets here. So maybe one day you'll order a chicken fajita at Chili's that is made with soy. You almost certainly won't notice the difference, but the planet will. Isn't that sweet? Wow. And this is this hasn't been assigned to a giant agricorp yet. Though, Not huh? yet, but it's looming on the horizon. spoke of death on some coast I saw the crumbling debris It dealt me a blow But I'm thankful to know That it could never happen to me I am standing on motionless land A constant under my feet God for walls and a roof overhead It could never happen to me I feel for the poor folks who wander the streets In search of their daughters and sons It's sad there are people with nothing to eat But I'm thankful I'll never be to be free No one deserves to be homeless alone But it could never happen to me I've lived my life righteous and wise 
I've chosen my path carefully Someone just has to be smiling on high Cause it could never happen to me No, I'm not without flaws And I've suffered through loss I've got problems away on my mind I've got bills to pay And a son on the way So I've gotta save every So far from my door As if tragedy lives overseas I wish I could help But I'm glad for myself That it could never happen to me It could never happen to me Here's a wake-up call from the dead Out of the Grey Lady For the second year in a row, middle-aged adults have registered the highest suicide rate in the country, according to the Federal Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Historically, the eldest segment of the population, those 80 and older, have had the highest rates of suicide in the United States. Starting in 2006, however, the suicide rate among men and women between the ages of 45 and 54 was the highest of any age group. This is scary. The most recent figures released from 2007 reveal that the 45 to 54 age group has a suicide rate of 17.6 per every 100,000 people. The second highest was the 75 to 84 age range with a rate of 16.4, followed by those between 35 and 44 with a 16.3. Quote, it's such a startling rise, said Dr. Paula Clayton, the medical director of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Dr. Clayton said the rise in suicide among Americans born in the 50s and 60s was probably a result of a combination of factors, including easier access to guns and prescription drugs and what may be a higher incidence of depression among baby boomers. You bet. Well, at least I think so. I just don't really care. 90% of people who kill themselves have a mental disorder at the time of their death, which can be aggravated by drug and alcohol abuse, Dr. Clayton said. Problems related to health, jobs, relationships, and finances have also been shown to be important risk factors for suicide, the CDC reported. You bet. What, 46% of all the unemployed are structurally unemployed? They've been out of work for more than 26 weeks? Yeah, yeah, that could bring them down. Men are more than three times as likely to commit suicide as women, and they tend to use guns. You know, they say that when men kill themselves with guns, they shoot themselves in the head, and women, who are supposed to be vainer than men, shoot themselves in the heart. About 50,000 people die each year from violence-related injuries. Suicides account for more than half the number. Indeed, a wake-up call from the dead. 
Well, Peter, uh, we've gotten one of those uh, SIG alert, one of those special traffic announcements. Uh, we have to do this now on uh, even on a dot-com radio show. You have to interrupt everything for, uh, well, for the apocalypse. So let's go up to uh, Happy Pandit up there in the Radio Now copter. Radio Now. If it's not now, it sucks, okay? All right, too fast the hour, and those hours are passing quickly, and I am in your ears, you're in my mix, I have left my body, I'm in your head, I am Bebop Loco, yeah, that's me, baby, the suspect, the outsider, and I'm looking for the hoochie cuties on. Weirdly cool perpetrators, playground, rebel family, now radio. Man, that's who we are. Uh, no, no, not anymore, Bebop, there, there's been a format change. Mr. Producer. Do we have a new focus group? Yeah, they focus us up real good this time. <laughs> well, what are we now? Uh, coming at you, Bob, man. Extreme, no sense of humor, aggressive, in your face, now, radio. Oh, man, all right, all right, it's three past the last on this day of all days, and me and the now crew counting down with you till the end of time. I got Danny Vanilla on the street. I'm right here dogging the dirt till the end of the world. I got chump threads in the booth. I got sports and new shorts coming into sevens, beep. All right, but every crew needs a captain. Let's go to our dizzy devil over fun, fun town. Captain Happy Pandit in the now chopper. Copy that, Bebop. And hello, folks. If you aren't swilling off his coffee in the cube farm by now, you're probably one of the gas-covers I'm looking down at here on the 666. From Wild Heights to the Santa Baby off-ramp, it's a mess. All lanes crawling slow and go behind two sacred cows pulling the Ark of the Covenant in the show-off lane. Yeah, Roger. The, uh, just uh, hearing now, the Edom intern is still being blocked by hostile natives in robes, diverting uncircumcised motorists under the Goyam cutoff. So if you're not a helmet head, I would stay away from there. Looks like locusts down there. Hey, those are locusts. We hear uh, Captain take, Happy. Uh, Aren't those fumigants on their way to the Zillion Bug March? Nuggets, all right, Bebop. Those, oh, okay, all right. Yeah, sorry, the chopper cops are backing me off to 1,500 ticks. So this is Captain Happy recycling off in the environmentally souped-up new... Who's now, Chopper? Get out of there. Mi vida loca. It's an unholy mess out there. Uh, we got, Oh, we got another take from one of our rolling eyeballs on the ground. Uh, Mrs. Caroline P. on the car oh, phone, baby. Car. Hello, my car just stopped in the middle of the freeway. Is it the bugs? Oh, it's the motherboard under my hood. It's going zeros. Why? Y2K. What? It's the millennium, stupid. Well, I know that. I can't move it. Calm down, Mrs. P. Get away from my car. How bad can it be? All right, things are beginning to unravel out there. Hey, we're at four. Get ready for more on Radio Now. Well, it's, if it's not happening now, who cares? Here's another entry in the Wingnut Journal. Senator Jake Knotts, a top supporter of South Carolina Governor candidate Andre Bauer, called frontrunner Nikki Haley, who is the child of Sikh immigrants from the Punjab, an effing raghead. He also went on a tear about her being a crypto-seek, pretending to be Christian and part of some wild conspiracy theory about Haley being a stalking horse for turban-wearing foreigners trying to undermine South Carolina's God-fearing culture. Not said that South Carolina is a religious community. We need a good Christian to be our governor, he said. She's hiding her religion. She ought to be proud of it. I'm proud of my God. Doesn't pride come before a downfall, or at least a downturn? Knott says he believes Haley's father has been sending letters to India, saying that Haley is the first Sikh running for high office in America. 
He says her father walks around Lexington wearing a turban. Oh, that should put him away for that. Send him back to Pakistan or whatever stand he came from. We're at war over here, not said. Asked to clarify, said he did not mean the United States was at war with India, but was at war with foreign countries. There's really nothing more I have to say about this. Well, Peter, there was an op-ed in the New York Times. I always like to take a look at them because sometimes there are some really weird people who, who write. It's not their regular op-ed columnist, and this time it was Richard V. Allen. Well, wasn't he uh, Reagan's national security advisor? You got it. From uh-huh. 1981 to 82, this was not a guy who lasted a long time, but he's full of memories. Yeah. So after the uh, the recent uh, Israeli raid on the Turkish ship, you know, and the crisis is me, crisis mode, crisis mode. So he's remembering a uh, a thing that happened when the Israelis uh, uh, bombed the n- nuclear reactor in, in Iraq. Iraq some during these years that he was with yes. Reagan. So he calls up. He he hears the news. He gets it on the hotline, and he tries to get the president on the hotline. And you know, the guy says, "I'm sorry, Mr. President. The president is already on the uh, on the helicopter." Uh, when Richard Allen says, "We'll get him off," and he says, uh, "He doesn't like to do that, sir." He says, "Get him off. This is an emergency." So you know, minutes pass, and he comes on, and uh, we'll pick up the story here. In what seemed like an eternity, but was only two minutes or so, President Reagan was on the line. A slight note of irritation in his voice. Yes, Dick. What is it? I quickly recited what happened, and he asked me to repeat the message. Okay, you with me so far? Yep. After pausing a few seconds, mm-hmm, he asked, Why do you suppose they did that? <clears throat> My answer was something to the effect that the Israelis clearly did not want that reactor to become operational. He went silent, and the phone line again filled with the churning of the copter. With characteristic aplomb, he suddenly asked, Well, you know what? I said, What, Mr. President? His retort was classic. Boys will be boys. No. No, 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 no. You know what just comes to mind? That with Richard Nixon, who became a uh, schizophrenic, right? And with uh, Reagan, who became an Alzheimer patient. And with George W. Bush, who is a total idiot. We have had years and years and years of crummy... Unacceptable presidents. A crummy and unacceptable. Well, listen to this. So, so they, so they go after this. If that weren't enough, imagine yourself to be a part of this high, high senior uh, uh, Oval Office meeting. Okay, oh, good. good. Hit the me. vigorous discussion provided some surprises, including the opinions presented by Vice President George H. W. Bush, the Chief of Staff James Baker, and the President's omnipresent aide. Michael Deaver. They argued strongly for punitive action against Israel, including taking back aircraft and slapping their hands and and delaying or canceling scheduled deliveries. There also came the unexpected news that several important Middle East countries, while publicly professing outrage and dismay, we were we really like that they hit those because he were well, very dangerous. You know, he's Saudi Arabia. You know, yeah. who else? Okay, here's who else is in the room: Secretary of Defense Casper Weinberger. Yeah, he was angry. Yeah, oh. but measured. While Secretary of State Alexander Haig uh, um, uh, carefully presented the diplomatic concerns. I'm taking over the White House. I am in control. You know why Casper Weinberger was mad? Because he had the first name Casper. <laughs> Casper. He's really pissed at his parents. <clears throat> 
Let's see who else was there. Uh, the uh, um, Hague was inclined to stand by Israel, but great. How can pressure- you be inclined and stand well, at the same time? Well, that's Alexander Haig for you. Yeah. But great pressure from within the State Department, from other countries, prompted him to be less vocal and ultimately to authorize American uh, officials to uh, have an official criticism of Israel. Then the room isn't empty yet. The CIA director William J. Casey. Yeah. was circumspect. He was asleep. Please. Circumspect. I, I didn't know he was Jewish. Like Haig, he understood the president's views well. Uh, boys, <laughs> boys will be boys. <laughs> boys. I get that one. <laughs> the president himself said little. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Listening patiently. Uh-huh. Well, I mean, <laughs> the session concluded. I lingered behind. The president looked up from the papers on his desk. Well, what did you think of that? I mean, we have no assertive, not one assertion of anything from the president what? so far. Right. Uh, well, what did you think of that? He asked, and I suggested that he had basically heard all points of view and that I had heard his comment the day before. One about boys will be boys. He smiled and returned to the papers on his desk. By the end of the year, the United States and Israel had signed a strategic cooperation agreement. That's just chilling. Is that Chilling, or is that just Washington? Well, here's a little bit of craziness from Talking Points Memo, one of my favorite uh, uh, sites on the web. They always come up with really good stuff. This is about the uh, the fact that the investigating officer in the court-martial of Berther Army Dr. Terrence Lakin has denied Lakin's request to compel President Obama to testify, robbing the Berthers of what they hoped would be a golden opportunity to try the eligibility question in a high-stakes trial setting. They really thought... That, uh, that the U.S. military would bring the president in to testify on his eligibility at the court-martialing of a wingnut. Okay, Lakin is being court-martialed for refusing to follow orders to deploy to Afghanistan on the grounds that Obama is not eligible to be president and that therefore, in Lakin's view, all military orders are illegitimate. That's great thinking! And here's the quote from the investigating officer. The defense submitted a memorandum outlining the concept of chain of command, showing that the president is at the top of the chain, showing that the Constitution requires the president to be a natural-born citizen and stating that soldiers must disobey illegal orders. That's what the investigating officer explains in this memo. There is no scholarly discussion of what constitutes an illegal order or under what circumstances such an order can be disobeyed. Right. There's the word. No scholarly discussion because these are a bunch of numbnuts. In my view, our constitutional jurisprudence allows Congress alone and not a military judicial body to put the president's credentials on trial. For this reasons, and the reasons stated above, it is my opinion the discovery items pertaining to the president's credentials are not relevant to the proof of any element of the charges and specifications set forth in the charge sheet. Consequently, I will not examine the documents or witnesses pertinent to the president or his credentials to hold office. Ah, but Driscoll is, however, allowing Lakin's attorney to call Alan Keyes as a witness for reasons that are unclear. A preliminary hearing is set for June 11th. Alan Keyes, I can't wait to hear what that great mind has to say. I should point out that it's this type of opinion that makes me so happy to be American. We have the most sophisticated, most civil libertarian, civil rights oriented 
uh, judicial system and legal system in the world. Perfect? No. Being chipped away at? Yes, uh, Mr. Obama, stop screwing with Miranda. But all in all, an extraordinarily person-sensitive, citizen-sensitive system. And I applaud it. And I applaud the investigating officer for throwing these wingnuts, you know, the curveball they bloody well deserve. I see a crawling king snake
Well, Pete, I uh, I picked up a story in the business section of the of the Times just because it was about hummus. Everybody likes hummus. Yeah, you know? this is the New York Times, the this, gray lady, the not gray the lady, L.A. Times, the tan lady. That's right. Okay. <clears throat> no orange juice in this paper. No, definitely not. Well, here's the thing. I mean, who cares about hummus? But uh, just to let everybody know, when they go to the supermarket and they buy these obscure little brands that you just have these precious, cute little names. They're just little panda bear brands. Of, okay. They're just little boutique-y things made in little clabbered houses out there in the there woods. There we go. PepsiCo estimates that $10 billion of its annual revenue of $43.2 billion last year came from what it calls its good-for-you portfolio. Oh, no. It's the, not good for you. It's just the, it's, it's good for you it's good, portfolio. It's the good for them portfolio. Yeah, yeah. Okay, just when you go marketing next, and these cute little panda brands come around like Aquafina Water, Near East Couscous, Quaker Oats, Tropicana, and we get way down into the back of the really precious, expensive items now, uh, Sabra. Naked juices. You've seen them in there. Oh, sure. They bought bought naked. They bought them. Smart food snacks. Stacy's pita chips. You thought you were healthy with pita chips. It's going right to Pepsi. And you thought Stacy personally made them. Oh, no. Stacy's picture is on them. Yeah. But that's like, you know, Betty Crocker. Oh, wait a minute. Betty Crocker and Laura Scudder. Do you know, are they literally in the kitchen smashing up them goobers or making them bread? No, they're playing Chemin de Fer in Monte Carlo. You bet. Well, PepsiCo intends to rapidly expand its lineup of healthier fare, according to the company's 2009 annual report, by taking steps like investing to accelerate the growth of these platforms. In other words, more advertising. No day without night, no beginning without an end. And this is the end of Radio Free Oz for today, Dave. Oh, my goodness. Well, that means we have to go off and perform in Portland and Eugene this yeah. coming weekend. Oh, I remember the last time we performed in Eugene, and I went out during the day down to the, the shores of the Willamette and ate blackberries or bushberries fresh. Mm. And I, went, Ooh, I want to move up to no- the northwest, and I'm finally here. And here you are. Yeah. Are you going to read a little something from well, the Fire I, Science Shakespeare th- this play? Is, this is from uh, the, the appendixes and notes to uh, anything you want to, uh, Shakespeare's famous lost comedy. There are a number of uh, famous Elizabethan recipes that are mentioned in the course of the play, and I thought I would dedicate this recipe uh, to the, uh, the executives of uh, British Petroleum, meeting down there in Louisiana. I think this is a perfect meal for them. It's called the Devil's Barbecue. Assemble a gutted razorback hog, about 40 pounds, and stuff with razor clams in their shells, then roast. Serve with chicken fried cuttlefish, hot whelp soup, country-wide deep-fried potatoes with cornholes, and sides of holy peño pepper shots. And that comes with Pecker's Up Ale, Southern Discomfort and Moldy's Old Rye. Oh, sounds delicious. Oil's well, that ends well, Dave. That's Radio Free Oz for today. Here's the Oz team. I'm Peter Bergman, your host, co-host David Osman. John Cumming is our electrical electronics a consultant. Phil Fountain, head of the Oz Design Group, makes it all look so good. Tom Gedwillow keeps the web happening. 
Chaz Glass does the financials. Dave Maloney records the sound. Bill McIntyre produces the whole thing. And Scott Wilde is our social media guru. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. <laughs>